0: Well, in the many years that I've been a pastor in churches here in the Memphis and Bartlett area, occasionally and from time to time I've been asked to do uh, funerals for people that I did not know. And when I do a funeral for someone that I do not know, um, I by no means assume that I understand their salvation story, nor can they tell it to me and sadly it's hard to depend upon the testimony of other people because to be truth be told we all want our family members to be in heaven one day and in the moment of their death we oftentimes want to do our best to talk them into that place and so my job as a as a preacher is not to talk to someone or to convince you that someone is in heaven when I can't testify of the faith that, they, that they've had and their works that they've lived and the, 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 the ways in which they walked as believers. And so I just preach the gospel. But one of the things that I've noticed about those, those funeral services, most particularly one that I did not too long ago. Knowing the lifestyle that the person lived, um, all I could give them was the hope of Jesus. And, and, and the hope of Jesus is not for the person that's deceased. It's for all those in the, in the pews and in the, in the sanctuary or in the building that need Jesus themselves. Because the day that we celebrate today is the day of hope. And a person that dies without Christ is without hope. But a person who still lives and breathes and walks on this earth has a possibility or an opportunity to believe in Jesus Christ once again and have the hope Of salvation. My observation of those funerals. Is hopelessness. One funeral in particular. That I had to do. Which was a tragic tragic situation. With a young girl that I once knew. Who was not walking with Christ. Is the room was full. Of hopelessness. Mourning. Wailing. Crying. No one in that room had any hope. That something better was. Destined for that person. And I sit here this afternoon and I sing these songs with you as a church and, and, and I don't think we're just singing these songs because uh, we had nothing better to do on a, a Sunday afternoon at 4 p.m. We sing these songs because we have hope in Jesus and we have hope in what Christ has accomplished. And so we sing with our voices out of the joy and the love and the, and the, the gratitude and the thankfulness that we have for Jesus. And as we've been studying through the Bible and, and looking at different texts, we we spent some time looking at the covenants and the new covenant, the final covenant that we're going to look at today in Hebrews chapter eight. It's the crescendo of all the covenants. It it is all the it is the path that that, that leads to the final destination when we look at what Christ accomplished uh, accomplished for us. And the opportunities that we have to enter into a relationship with him by his grace and for his glory. And so we are going to finalize our study of the covenants today. And if you missed those, I would encourage you to look back and read and listen on our web, uh, website and, and our app. You can go back and listen to those sermons. Uh, but even if you didn't listen to them, you'll understand today what Christ has, has done for us on this Resurrection Sunday. So we're looking at Hebrews chapter 8 today, and the title of my sermon is, A Better One, Jesus and the New Covenant. Because what Jesus Christ accomplishes for us, through his uh, perfect life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, is he provides a better way for his people to be in covenant with God, to be in relationship with God. We talked about a covenant, remember, is, a, is an agreement between two parties. And that it was in the Bible, not just an agreement like a contract in, in, in purchasing land or buying a house or buying a vehicle. But it's a relationship built upon love and intimacy. So a covenant marriage is a marriage of a husband and a wife agreeing together in love and staying faithful to the commitment that they made to one another. Well, the New Covenant is the final covenant. It's the better covenant. It's what all the covenants were pointing to. And it helps us understand a relationship with Jesus Christ. We find one particular passage about the New Covenant in Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. Stuart read this for us today. And um, I want us to look at this chapter today in a, a summary fashion to see how Jesus is the initiator of, the mediator of, and the the guarantee of the final and better covenant that we have with God. Now, as always, when you study a book of the Bible, you need to know a few things about the book itself. Just as a side note, our next journey into a book of the Bible will be 1 Corinthians. So, uh, I would encourage you to... um, to, to begin to look through 1 uh, Corinthians, read up, study through it as, as, we, as I preach through that book. I probably won't start that next Sunday, but we will journey through that very quickly um, in the upcoming weeks. And I look forward to studying that. And before we dive into that book, we'll look at the Corinthian church. We'll look at the city of Corinth. Well, the book of Hebrews is, uh, is a letter that was written to Hebrews. Hebrews are Jewish people. And it's most understood, it's best understood through history and through the things written in the book of Hebrews that this letter was written uh, to encourage new Jewish Christians, meaning Jewish by culture, Christians by faith, in their walk with Jesus Christ. It's believed that Hebrews was written... In a time right before the the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. The reason why that we believe that is because as you read through the book of Hebrews, even in our passage today, it references the old covenant traditions and practices that are vanishing, that are passing away. Well, those practices would have been the worship at the temple... It would have been the the operation of the high priest, the sacrifices that were made on the Day of Atonement. And of course those things were vanishing away because Rome comes in, destroys the temple. That worship never exists in that place at that time again. And so those practices were vanishing away. So it's best understood that the writer writes this letter to uh, uh, Jewish Christians um, in a time right before the destruction of the temple, and the reason why he's writing it because if you know your history, you know that during around the destruction of the temple, the the Roman leadership and the emperor himself hated Christianity and it, and and began to bring in some of the most intense times of Christian persecution. Now if you're a Jew who's converted to, from Judaism to Christianity, still grounded in your Jewish roots, but trusting in Jesus as the Messiah, it would be easy for you in a heat of persecution to turn back, to denounce the faith that you have in Jesus when you see your brothers and sisters in the church beginning to face the wrath of persecution. It would be easy to do so. And let us be warned. Let us be warned in the future church. That when we stand firm upon the faith of Jesus Christ and his word. We need to stand upon that word firmly, faithfully, even as we begin to see persecution one day. That we wouldn't back down. That we wouldn't be afraid to confess Jesus Christ as Lord. That we wouldn't be afraid to confess his word as the one true word, the inerrant word. The word that never changes, that's without error. That what Jesus said, he said, and 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 it lasts through all eternity. Even if we're persecuted for what we hold fast to. And so this passage is an encouragement To these Hebrew Christians. And it should be an encouragement to us. On this resurrection Sunday. As we look to see and find hope and encouragement. In what Jesus Christ has done. Studying through all of the Bible church. Is a great way to be reminded of God's faithfulness. In the same way that we study through books of the Bible. To just see how God is continually faithful to us. That he never fails us that He never lets us down, that His strong arm continues to uplift us and hold us up throughout the most difficult days. Well, looking at the covenants, as we said, the structure and the backbone of God's Word, we began to see then as they move through these covenants, from creation to Abraham, to the Mosaic Covenant, to the Davidic Covenant, and then finally to the, the New Covenant, the Better Covenant, the Final Covenant, We see the faithfulness of God carrying out the promises that He has made as He always does. And so let's look at a couple aspects of this covenant. All pointing to Jesus, His Son. Number one, we see Jesus as a better king. Now, the writer in chapter 8 is beginning to summarize and celebrate what he's done throughout the book of Hebrews up to this point, And that Jesus is better than something. He talks about Jesus being better than the angels. He talks about Jesus being better than Moses. He will now get into Jesus being better than the other priests that had existed in the Jewish uh, history. That he comes from the priestly order of Melchizedek. That he is the one who is uh, initiating, mediating, and finalizing the better covenant that we have with God. And at the very beginning in verse 1, the writer of Hebrews, which by the way I forgot to say, we don't know who the writer of Hebrews is. I forgot to mention that. We've, we don't know the, the most letters in the New Testament identify the writer. Paul would identify himself Peter would identify himself in the, in the opening. We don't have that, that introduction here. So we speculate who this might be. But it's clearly un, it's unknown. And that's okay. Now on to verse 1. The writer, the unknown writer, writes that... He says, now the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. One who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven... A minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. Notice first of all that Jesus is identified as being seated on the throne in heaven. In verse 1, he's seated at the right hand of the throne on the majesty in heaven. The right hand was the place of honor. If Jesus is in heaven, seated at the right hand, um, uh, uh, the the right hand, the place of honor next to the Father, then we know that Jesus is what—he's alive. We know that he is alive; that he is risen victoriously from the grave; that he is seated in the heavenly places. You know, a lot of times we we spend a lot of time at at Easter and, and, and thinking about Good Friday, Jesus dying on the cross and Jesus rising from the grave. But really and truly the resurrection of Jesus doesn't stop on that Sunday morning. It continues on to His ascension. The ascension is just as vital as the resurrection because He's continually going up. He doesn't just come up out of the grave. He continues to go up after 40 days, to the right hand of the Father in the place of honor. And why can he do that? Because he's not just a man. Because he's the only Son of God. And because he's the only Son of God, he sits at the right place, the right hand of God. In the place of honor. Psalm 110 spoke of this right place of honor. And a lot of the Jews during Jesus' day thought that that psalm was about David. And Jesus had to make the point, and Paul had to make the point, that if that psalm was about David, then David would be living forever. That psalm wasn't about David. That was about David's Lord sitting at the right hand. And David's Lord was the Messiah. And the Messiah is King Jesus. And King Jesus has risen from the grave. And His resurrection and His ascension brought great hope to the church, to the disciples, and to us. Why? Because He is the better king. Think about all the covenants that have come and gone in the Old Testament. They all represented a phase and a a time in in, in Israel's history. And in that time were leaders. And in those leaders that ruled over history, they were failing uh, or, or faulty leaders. They all struggled with sin. They were never seated at the right hand of God. But the death, burial, and resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ gives us hope because Jesus now sits on the throne. He rules and reigns over all that the Father has given Him. Giving us hope that what He has accomplished is true. We saw and understand His appearances 40 days um, after His uh, resurrection from the grave to solidify the evidences needed. We studied that when we went through the Gospels. So that the people could see with their physical eyes that Jesus was alive. But you know what's interesting? Very few people saw Jesus ascend to heaven. And yet the church is affirmed and reminded throughout the New Testament that Jesus rose. His disciples were invited up to the mountain to see his ascension. Knowing that his ascension was him going to a place of honor. If you want to summarize the life of Jesus in his earthly form, you can do it in two ways. His humiliation and his glorification. He came humbly in this world. He came born in meager state. He uh, it was, grew up in obscurity. He was humiliated and rejected by his people. Mocked and beaten by his enemies. Crucified, stabbed, and upon his death, buried in a borrowed, borrowed tomb. That was his humiliation. We looked at that on Friday night at our Good Friday service. But at his resurrection, he comes forth in victory, casting off the bondage of the grave, rising as a victor over sin and death. And he accentuates that rising after 40 days, rising to glory and seated at the right hand of his Father in honor and power. And what do the angels tell his disciples at that ascension? They say, why are you standing gazing at the sky? The Lord who's left and gone up into heaven will return in the same way to you. So that's the hope. That extenuating hope that is extenuation of the hope that Jesus has not only risen victoriously he's left the stage of humility now he's in the stage of glory and it starts at his resurrection when he comes up out of the grave and he lives in a bodily a glorified state uh, for 40 days showing people his power showing that he's alive and then he rises up to heaven again in victory Seated at the right hand of God, the place of honor, and he will come again in victory and glory. He will come again with the celebration of heaven. He will come again with the the casting away and the judgment of all sinners. Why? Because he's a better ruler and a better king than all of Israel's history as he rules and reigns. Remember what he tells his disciples in John 14? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, I would, not have told, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place, I will come again and I will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. As Jesus being the better king, better than David, better than all the judges, better than all the, the rulers of Israel... We acknowledge that he's king over our lives. And here in this passage, the writer of Hebrews is reminding us the position and the place in which Jesus rests and lives today. That he rules and reigns over all things. And we have to ask ourselves, do we celebrate him as our king? Do we celebrate him and submit to him as our Lord and king? Trusting in him... Resting in him and his finished work upon the cross. But not only is he a better king, he's a better priest. The majority of this passage reminds us that Jesus does not just serve one role in this life. In Israel's history, they had kings and they had priests. Jesus becomes onto the scene and takes the, 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 the responsibilities as the Messiah to be both prophet, priest and king. And so he rules and reigns at the place of honor, but in verse 1 it also says, and it has said previously in Hebrews, and it will continue to say, that he serves as a great high priest. Now we know that the high priest, as we studied through Ezra and Nehemiah, we've learned a lot about their access to God in the Holy of Holies that no other Jewish person had. We know that they mediated or they stood between God and man, representing man to God and acting on God's behalf to man. They would uh, partake in the, and, and lead the, the group of servants and other priests in the sacrifices. And only the high priest was able one day a year to go into the Holy of Holy, where the presence of God dwelt and make atonement for the, the, the nation of Israel. And high priests served in the temple, and they were destined for this office by the lineage of Aaron, the brother of Moses. If you were born in that lineage, from the tribe of Levi, through the, the lineage of Aaron, you, would, you were uh, qualified to be a priest and serve in that role. And so, one high priest served, and then later another one from the same lineage, and then another and another throughout the history of Israel. And we read in chapter 7 that there became some clear obstacles to the priesthood under the lineage of Aaron in the Old Covenant. And I think these are important for us. So if you need to flip over, look in Hebrews chapter 7 verse 11. Again, the writer is comparing Jesus to the priesthood of the Old Testament. He says, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood which is the priesthood under Aaron, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? The writer here is giving us and identifying a problem. And the problem was, is that there was no opportunity For the people to be perfected under the law of Moses by following the law perfectly. They couldn't do it. Therefore, the work of Aaron and the priests never allowed the people to receive the perfection that was needed. In other words, it was a limited service. And the reason why it was limited, because it leads and points to the unlimited service that we see with Jesus. Again, look at that, verse 11. If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to come after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? So in other words, the priests of the Old Testament under the Old Covenants, they encouraged the people to worship the Lord. They they taught from the law of God. But the law of God could never lead to the cleansing of the soul from sin. Their acts of sacrificing were external acts of worship to God. But the guilt of sin upon their consciences remained. And because the law reminded them that their sin offended a holy God day by day, they continually lived in a state of guiltiness and sin. We need to understand that as we look at who Jesus Christ is. So that's one obstacle. The second obstacle, still in the chapter 7, verse 23, is that no priest lived forever. So there was no perfection under the law that the priests could administer. And secondly, no priests lived forever. Look at verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, meaning Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Now... I'm not going to get into the, 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 the passage in Genesis, but in, in Genesis there was a priest named Melchizedek. And the, it, it was believed and understood that, that Melchizedek was actually uh, sent from God. And, and, and therefore, he was a, a different order of priests than Aaron and the Levites. And he served Abraham uh, during Abraham's uh, time on earth. And, and the writer of Hebrews is making this comparison to Jesus being from God, not in the line of Aaron, not in the line of Levi, but from a different order. And because he is from a different order, he provides what the old covenant and the old laws could not provide. And what is that? Perfection under the law and he being an, a priest that lives forever. Look at what Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14 through 16 says. Hebrews chapter 7. He says, For it is evident that our Lord was at the all, excuse me, it was evident that our Lord descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning where he was from, his bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Now this is important because what this text is telling us is that Jesus did not qualify to be a priest because he came from Aaron or Levi. Instead, he proves that he's the better priest because he rose from the dead. Because he lived an indestructible life. Because he defeated sin and death. Because he was sent from God, like Melchizedek, from another priestly order in the Old Testament. Representing that which came from God to be the mediator between God and man. In the way that Melchizedek was between God and Abraham. And so we see then that Jesus serves as our high priest. Qualified because of his resurrection. And as he serves, he does so because he is eternal. And because he has provided a way for us to obtain perfection in him. Now let's be real clear. That's not perfection where we never sin on this earth. It's perfection in Christ so that when we attain that perfection one day, it's because of the work that Christ has accomplished. So Jesus as our high priest uh, provides a way in which we can, uh, can, can rest in him, can, can find his sacrifice as acceptable. He goes, the Bible tells us, sacrificing himself. The blood of Christ, it says in Hebrews chapter 9, is offered through the eternal spirit without blemish to God to purify our conf- consciences from dead works to serve the living God. So there's a couple aspects of Jesus being the high priest that's important for us to understand. The old priests of the old covenant died, they didn't live forever. Jesus lives forever. The old priests of the old covenant. They, they, they administered what the law commanded them to, to administer, but the law could not lead to perfection. Jesus, in his perfection, allows us to be perfect in the eyes of the Father because of his righteousness. And lastly, Jesus offers the final sacrifice for sin, his own blood, so that our sins can not only be washed away, church, but because our consciences can finally be cleared from guiltiness. Now this is very important for us as we understand the gospel. Church, if we understand the gospel, then we understand that guilt and sin has been placed upon Christ and has been removed. And so it's not just about forgiveness. It's about the elimination of shame and guiltiness before God during COVID, I busied my time by remodeling my kitchen. My kitchen, if you've ever been in my house, it was was a lot smaller and there was a wall that that stood uh, into my kitchen that led to a pantry and I tore that wall out. I tore the wall out and I I repaired the ceiling. I, I put down new tile floor. There was a door that used to be there. There was a wall that was there and it It's completely gone. There's no evidence of it anymore except up in my attic. Now, it would be foolish for me to continue to act in my kitchen as if a wall and a door still lives there. That it's still in existence. That I literally walk up to the space where the door was and I reach for the door. It would be ludicrous of me to act in such a way. And you're like, what does this have to do with what you're saying? Because that's how we deal with our sin as Christians. We forget the fact that the the Spirit of Christ, as our great high priest, has sacrificed in such a way that our consciences, that alarm system of sin that God has given us, has been purified. So that we no longer have to live with guiltiness. It's been removed, church. Stop beating yourself up for what you have done in the past. Remember it, yes, to enjoy the grace of God. But by no means allow that to to build up into shame and guilt. Because that's paying for it twice. Jesus already paid for it. He poured that guilt and that shame upon himself. It's been removed if you trust in him. I love the hymn, "My, my sin... Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. That's what Jesus Christ did as our high priest. Thirdly, a better access. In verse 5, it says that the, the writer begins to make a comparison of these Old Testament priests. Every high priest, he says in verse 3, is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it's necessary for this gift to have also to have something to offer. Well, we know Jesus offered something. He offered his life, right? He says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Jesus fulfills the law. He's not in the, uh, the lineage of Aaron And Levi, and yet he's appointed by God and he's qualified to be the priest, as I stressed earlier. Verse 5 they serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. But it is, Christ has obtained a Ministry that is more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. The writer in verse 5 and 6 is talking about the fact that Jesus Christ, serving as our high priest, has a better access that he has attained for us. The old access in verse 5, which is mentioned was, was separated from the people. Remember the Jews had no access to God. They had no opportunity to approach God outside going into the courtyard of the temple and turning their sacrifices over to the priests and the temple servants there. So they were able to approach God to a point but there was still a great barrier and a great separation. And even the women were not able to go as far into the temple as the men And even the men had a point of restriction. They could not go any farther. And then the temple priest could go, but they could only go to a certain spot. And then the high priest could go, but only he could go one time into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. That's a lot of, of, of limited access. That's a lot of separation. And that was intentional. That was intentional for us to be reminded, like at Mount Sinai, That the people could look at the mountain, they could come near the mountain, but they could not have touched the mountain. If they did, they would be destroyed by the holiness and the power of God. That was reflected in the temple as they erected the tent, wandering in the wilderness, and then the temple later on. And why is all that important? Well, one, because it reflects upon the holiness of God. That God is so holy and so righteous that our sin does not allow us to dwell in His presence. And it also points forward to the better access that we have with Jesus. That as Moses served in the temple and the tent, as the high priest served in the temple and the tent, those were just shadows, church. They were copies. You know what a copy is? It's less than the original. Back in the day, back in the 80s, all my cassette tape possessors, right? I hope if you have, parents, if you have any cassette tapes left, man, just take it out to your kid and show them what that thing is. If you have an 8-track, God bless you. And what, you, what, what, what I remember, the, the double tape deck that you have, where you could go to the store and you could pop in a tape, and it had your music on it, and you could pop in a blank, and what could you do? You could record the copy, Right? I know it wasn't, it wasn't moral, it wasn't ethical, but we did it. And we pass out copies of the music to our friends. And, our, and my kids are like, wow, you could do that? We did. But the copy was never as good as the original. It was never as good. And these copies of the temple, or the, excuse me, the temple and the, and the tabernacle are just shadows and copies of what? Of the presence of God, of heaven. They were literally erected. To remind us that something better was coming. And Jesus comes to remind us that he has provided a better access to God. That those shadows escaped. Those copies faded away. Giving us a hope that what Jesus Christ has provided for us by entering into the presence of God and and sacrificing himself as an atonement for sin, he provides an access that the people of God never had before Jesus came. Direct access to our creator. So think about this. Flip over if you have to to Hebrews chapter 9 verse 24 through 28. I'm trying to stay in the same neighborhood of our text today. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. For Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. Not to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Excuse me, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood Not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he's appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And and just as it's appointed for man once to die, and after that the judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting on him. So Jesus, again, picture the temple, the access, the curtain, where the Holy of Holies on the other side. The writer of Hebrews is showing us this picture, where Jesus doesn't do that in a physical building, He literally does that in heaven. Providing access directly to to God for His people. And this is so important for us to understand the new covenant. A greater covenant, a better covenant, because the people of Israel never had this opportunity under the old covenant to approach a holy God. But because the perfection of Christ... Because of the work of Christ, we can come with confidence, as Hebrews 4 says, to draw near to the throne of grace. That's the throne that God sits on, the throne of grace. And that throne, we're told we will receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is why the new covenant is important, church. Because you have a relationship with the creator of the universe through his son. That through the son of God, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, he provides an offering and a sacrifice so that we can now be at peace with him. Remember, we studied this Friday night. Upon him, the chastisement that brought us access to God. That's what that means. We finally can approach God as our Father. We can finally acknowledge that we are His true sons and daughters, that He hears us, that He loves us, that He is gentle and kind to us, that He provides for our needs, and that He's done all that is necessary so that we might be saved from His wrath to come. So a better king, Jesus is a better king. He's provided, or or he serves as a better priest. He's provided a better access. And lastly, we see a better covenant. A better covenant. Back in Hebrews chapter 6, verses, or Hebrews chapter 8, excuse me, verses 6 and 7. Again, I read, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much excellent, much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. And it's enacted on better promises Let me look at a couple of those better promises. How is it better? How is it better? Well, the New Covenant focuses on a spiritual Israel. A spiritual Israel. Jeremiah is the passage from verses 8 down to verses 12. Jeremiah chapter 31. The writer of Hebrews is quoting Jeremiah in his letter. So he's looking back to this Old Testament prophet. And Jeremiah was, had a vision and he prophesied of the new covenant that would come for the people of Israel. And he prophesied it before the Babylonians captured the, the Israelites or the Jews and destroyed the temple. So let's travel back in time before Ezra and Nehemiah. That's the time that, that Jeremiah was ministering and serving before the Babylonians captured them, before they enslaved them. Jeremiah gets this this vision, this prophecy of what's to come. And the promise of the new covenant in the middle of the storm about to fall upon them. And Jeremiah's job as a prophet, and a lot of these major prophets, was to warn the people of their sinfulness and disobedience. Jeremiah is literally called the weeping prophet because he has so much bad news to share for the people. What a title, right? I don't want to be the weeping preacher or the, the preacher with the bad news all the time. But that's kind of, that's kind of his, his, his lot and his purpose uh, in ministry was to remind them that sin has heavy consequences and a nation called Babylon is going to come and destroy you because you are covenant breakers. But in the midst of that bad news, he said, but there's hope. A new covenant's coming. God's not going to forsake you. He's not going to leave you. And what do we understand? That this new covenant that will come will be with the the people of Israel, but it will be with the people of Israel that we're not familiar with because it's not going to be about a nation of people. It's going to be about a people who have faith in the Messiah, faith in God which includes as Matthew 28 tells us all who believe in the Messiah from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Remember Jesus tells his disciples, go and make disciples what? of all nations. So a spiritual Israel is not about a nation of people who are born in a certain place in the world with certain bloodlines. We saw that nation crumble face captivity But those, a remnant of those people who would believe in the Messiah and hope in him and promise, believe the promises that God has has given them, will be, the Bible says, grafted together with Gentiles like us. And that's what makes up spiritual Israel and those recipients of the new covenant. I want you to look at and pay attention to this passage in Galatians chapter 3 verse 16. Paul speaks of these promises that God has made through the covenants, and in Galatians 3:16 he says, "Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring." Paul says it does not say "and to offsprings" referring to many, but referring to one, to your offspring who is Christ. See, the the idea is, is that you and I, as believers in Jesus, as followers of Jesus, whether you were raised in a Jewish family or whether you were raised in an Italian family, if you have hope in Christ, if you have faith in Christ, then the Bible says that you are trusting in the true offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus, and therefore you belong to Israel through him. A spiritual Israel. And so, this new covenant is the promises for a spiritual Israel. And this Israel is an eternal people, a people that will live and dwell together, seated around the throne, worshiping the Lord through all eternity. Now, some people always say, well, what about the nation of Israel? And my, my answer to that and in my interpretation, and this is, this is batted about throughout the ages, is I cannot understand and see in Scripture how God would allow a nation of people who refuse to have faith in Him to sit around the throne and enjoy the blessings of heaven when they have rejected them and continue to reject the Lord as their Messiah just because they're a nation of people that were chosen by God. That doesn't make any sense to me. The, the, the promise and the theme of, of the Bible has always been, even from Abraham, about faith in God's promises. A trust in God's promises. So if you are a Jew or a Gentile, you become a part of spiritual Israel when you trust in the true offspring of Abraham, who is Jesus. And from that trust in him, you will be a part of the covenant that God makes with Israel. So we have a spiritual Israel, number two, an eternal covenant. That's supposed to say number two, an eternal covenant. And the new covenant is different from the old because it brings about a change in the parties of the covenant. Yes, the new covenant is with God and his people, but Christ becomes our representative in the covenant, he's the true Israel. I call this, and the Bible calls this in Hebrews chapter 13, the eternal covenant because it's the final one to last through all eternity. As the church dwells in heaven, worshiping with God in intimacy with God. But who fulfills the obligations of the new covenant? Well, we've seen that in the old covenant, the people couldn't observe the obligations. They constantly failed. They constantly disobeyed. So the eternal covenant, the new covenant is is built upon this fact. Jesus represents mankind in fulfilling the obligations of the new covenant. He is our covenant keeper. Just as Moses was the mediator between God and man, Moses was also a covenant breaker. But Jesus is the mediator between God and man and the covenant keeper for us. So that in the new covenant... We are called to have faith. We are called to obey. We have responsibilities to be holy and live faithfully. But here's the beauty of it all. It's built upon what Jesus Christ has done. This is where our theology at Redemption Community Church is such a beauty in this moment. Because if you are elected of God and called by him to the gospel and you've believed and and by faith repented and you're regenerated and you're adopted as sons and daughters, then guess what? God's preserving you, not based upon the fact that you are a good person or you have the strength. You are being preserved till the end because Jesus is the covenant keeper for you. He's the one that allows you to persevere till the end. He's the one that's strengthening you to not turn in the midst of persecution and pain. He's the reason the new covenant is eternal because he keeps it on our behalf as our representative. Thirdly, we're promised an inward change, an inward change. We should be reminded very briefly that that Israel failed multiple times keeping the law of God. It should astonish us that not only did they not keep the law of God, they literally lost the law of God. <laughs> there were times that they didn't even know where it was. That the manuscripts and the documents and the scrolls, which they had been, that had been written down, they did not even understand where they had been kept and there were moments in their history where they, they, they found them and they, 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 they subscribed to them and, and submitted themselves to them again. But they lost them and they ignored them and it meant nothing to them as people in different moments. And Israel as a nation was disobedient. And so what happened in those moments? God's presence left them not to dwell with them. During their captivities, God's presence did not dwell with them. They were distanced from their their land and distanced from God. And the new covenant brings something different. Internal change. An inward change. And And the foundation of that inward change is that God dwells with men by possessing us by His Spirit. The Bible literally tells us in Hebrews chapter eight, verses ten and eleven, for this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. So and they, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will not teach, and they will not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, "Know the Lord," for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. What happens in the new covenant that's different from the old because of the work of Christ on the cross because of his resurrection is that for the first time we are supernaturally transformed by the spirit of God in the Old Testament the spirit would come and go the spirit would fall upon kings and fall upon people and then leave but the Bible tells us in the new covenant the spirit descends upon us. So that we might know the Lord and have a relationship with him. That he literally will dwell with us. So that there's never a time that we truly as followers of Jesus can be distant from the Lord. We need to understand that theology. That if the Holy Spirit, the presence of God dwells in us then there's never a moment that we should pray, Lord, I need you to to be with me. I know we say that, but the Lord is with us. We never need to pray, Lord, come and be a part of this, this gathering. If we're Christians dwelt by the Holy Spirit, the presence of God is with us. There's no inviting him to come as if we're some gatekeeper to the spiritual work of God. He's here among us. As we live according to our relationship that Jesus Christ has provided. And similarly, the difference between the Old and New Covenant in this inward change is that the Old Testament, they had laws written literally on tablets of stone. The law of God is given to us and written on our hearts. So we had this, as I said earlier, this conscience that literally is weighty upon us by the the very uh, ethics and moralities of the law of God that God writes upon our hearts. And as we begin to uh, know and understand the word more, that scripture illuminates our minds and our hearts, and it brings conviction, and it brings joy. That's what Jeremiah tells us, 700 years before Jesus ever comes, that the law of God is going to be given to our hearts and minds. Charles Spurgeon writes that, he says, although we can read the law in the scriptures and see it wrought out in the life of Christ, it's needful that the Spirit of God should come and, and enlighten us with regard to it if we're really to know what it is. Otherwise, he says, a man will hear the Ten Commandments read every Sabbath day and go on breaking them without ever knowing that he's breaking them. He may be keeping the letter of the commandment And yet all the while be violating their spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes to show us, he shows us what the law really is. He continues, when the Lord thus writes his law in our heart, he makes us to know the far-reaching power and scope of the commandment. He causes us to understand that it touches not only our actions and our words, but thoughts and the most transient imaginations the things that are scarcely born within us, the sights that pass in a moment across our mind, like a stray passenger who passes in front of the camera when a photographer is taking a view. He says the Spirit of God teaches us that even these momentary impressions are sinful and that every thought of foolishness is sin. The nation of Israel didn't have that. When you sin in those little moments in your day and the Holy Spirit is impressing upon you that thought is wrong, that action is wrong, that no one else saw, that's a new covenant blessing that that Jesus Christ paid for on the cross so that you and I can walk day by day in holiness, faithful to him. And so the church is God's called people who are spiritually, are are spiritual Israel, the transformed people from within. They hear the call of God, they respond by faith to his word, believing fully in Christ and being dwelt by his spirit. So the words of life are daily alive within us. And they move and work inside of us like remodelers of a home, changing the old to the new day by day. Lastly, the covenant is better because of the covenant blessings. He concludes in verse 12 of the prophecy by saying, For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Remember, every festival, every feast time, every year, over and over again, the men of Israel would travel under the old covenant to Offer their sacrifices. And the, uh, those sacrifices were reflected in a lot of different ways. But, but, but one was the sin offering. And they were going to offer the, the sin, uh, off, make sacrifices for the sins that they had committed. And what did they have to do? They had to go back. And they had to go back. And they had to go back. And that was their lifetime. This was their, 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 their way of worship. And this was their way of, of, of pleading with God for forgiveness. But Jesus Christ, with the covenant blessings of the new covenant, is merciful toward our iniquities and remember our sins no more. It's a final payment for sin. It's a total and complete forgiveness by the sufficient sacrifice of Christ, the Son of God. So we experience just one of the covenant blessings mentioned here The forgiveness, the total and complete forgiveness of all the sins that we've committed. And then the writer concludes, in speaking of the new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. What is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Which Jeremiah is foreseeing the final destruction of the temple. And the lack of need for the old covenant because the new covenant is coming. And church, the new covenant is here in Jesus It was enacted, ratified, guaranteed, and will be the very thing that will exist throughout the time that we have left on this earth until Jesus Christ returns and into eternity because it's our eternal covenant. And it helps us understand all that Christ has done. And it it weaves together and, and, and sows the final thread of the redemptive work of Christ throughout the Bible. That all these things that we've studied are pointing to Jesus and what he came to accomplish in his death, burial, and resurrection. And let me just remind you as we conclude that at the night that Jesus Christ was betrayed, before he went to the garden and was arrested, he sat down with his disciples. And they had the Passover meal together and he broke the bread with them. And he told them that the bread was different than the bread that they had normally thought about in the Passover. The the Passover bread before represented the, the escape from Egypt, the limited amount of time that they had to allow the bread to rise. So it was unleavened bread. He says, now this bread which is broken represents my body that will be broken for you. It represented not the escape from Egypt but the escape from sin through his broken, brutal body upon the cross. That body that eventually faced literally the very wrath of God for our sins. And he takes the wine and the wine represented the joy, the joy that they had in the celebration of, of the Exodus and the, the, the liberation of their bondage. But this time the wine didn't represent liberation from Egypt. It represented the liberation from sin, that it washes sin away. And Jesus tells them as he takes the cup, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is the blood of the new covenant representing what I am enacting by dying upon the cross and rising from the grave. And so church, I pray that as we understand the new covenant, we would celebrate And find great contentment in the sufficiency and the work of Christ upon the cross. In his death, burial, and resurrection. That we would see the faithfulness of God to not only promise his son all the way back in Genesis. And all the way through the covenants. But the final covenant, the new covenant, the better covenant. Reflects upon the faithfulness of God in our lives and in the world. To bring sinners back to him. And I hope that you would find comfort in the access that you have to him. Because Jesus Christ has gone before us, you can cry out to God for help at the throne of grace in a time of need. And if you don't have a relationship with him today, I pray you would trust him. That you would know that the wrath of God is coming and it falls upon all those who choose to live their own lives the way that they want to live it. Not trusting and surrendering to Christ as their king, but wanting to be the king of their own lives. And in doing so, you would understand that the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God will fall upon you. And the judgment of God will fall for all eternity because you are choosing to live the way you want to live. And not under the lordship that Christ possesses. And so my, my plea with you, friend, my plea with you is to turn from your sin and repent and believe in Christ today. He is worthy of your worship. He has defeated sin and death. He has provided the new covenant with new covenant blessings that you can enjoy by his work. And it's a finished work. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this journey that we've made through the Bible as we looked at covenants. And on this resurrection day, to think about the final covenant, the new covenant That Jesus Christ has accomplished so much for us, God. We celebrate him and we thank you for the victory that he's gained over sin and death. God, help us to understand these truths and cherish Jesus even more. To celebrate him even more and to believe in him by faith. God, I pray that as we think about his vicarious substitutionary death, We would simply understand that as knowing that Christ stood in our place so that we could be free. And so we thank you for that freedom, and we celebrate that freedom in Christ. And now we will sing, Father, and we will worship him, and we will honor him for all that he has done. So we say thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for your son. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.